0: Welcome to the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission podcast. In this podcast, we'll explore the issue of hate speech in the digital public sphere. You will hear contributions from speakers at a recent event held by the Commission at the Science Gallery in Dublin, Ireland in November 2018. The event brought together experts from the worlds of law, academia, media, journalism, and tech to discuss online hate speech in the Irish context. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was one of those involved in authoring the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, famously spoke about human rights starting in small places close to home. In 1948, Roosevelt could not have envisaged the digital revolution that we've witnessed or the fact that hate speech online can now be automated and targeted at individuals. Today, there can be no smaller places closer to home than the mobile phone screen you carry or the laptop sitting on a desk in a closed bedroom. 97% of consumers in Ireland have access to either a smartphone or tablet. And 98% of smartphone owners use their devices daily. Dr. Cindy Joyce from the University of Limerick.
1: It's it's a great platform for the young people because it has it has I suppose in one way it has built their confidence in different aspects, connecting with their own community, connecting with um, people from their own community that are in different locations, and you know bringing um, kind of. Um, those connections and that pride with the community. But then the other side of it is the negative um, aspect of it where you have those those comments. It affects their everyday life, I think, because particularly the young travellers when they're on um, Twitter and Facebook and and um, other social media platforms, you know, they're seeing every single day they're seeing some negative comments about their community. And it's it's so normalized that they just kind of slide through it. You know, um, it's it's rarely reported. Um, because if, 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 if the community had to report everything that, that was under, you'd want to spend nearly 24 hours on, on the platforms reporting. The media are just ridiculous. Like, um, comments that, that, that say like, that the community should be, should be exterminated, um, calling the children feral, rodents, parasites, you know, all these words. Um, talking about throwing us all into the sea. Um, talking about burning caravans.
0: When we talk about the spread of racism and intolerance online, it's important to remind ourselves that we are not talking about an abstract idea. Toxic discourse, even when online, can have a real-world, oppressive and damaging effect on those who fall victim to it. Hate speech can cause people to withdraw from society, to avoid expressing their identity. Hate speech can also carry a powerful message beyond those directly targeted impacting an entire community. When such expression becomes normalised in the public sphere, on the airwaves and in the wider media, that impact is compounded.
1: Most of the comments that are on Facebook, for example, they're done by adults. You know, it's not other kids. Like, of course, you have a few other kids that... that um, that are negatively commenting on things, but it's mostly adults that are commenting, so you have adults commenting about children in the community, and I suppose that internalizes that message of being inferior um kind of internalizes with, within the community, and it brings on I suppose a lot of um, mental health issues, you know because they're they're thinking about. And it's very difficult to, like, we're a really proud community, but it's very difficult to be proud when you have negative comments continuously at your community, as if your community um, was some type of inferior group in society.
0: Emma Dabery, social historian, broadcaster and writer.
2: I went on news night and I spoke about cultural appropriation. The backlash against that, like from the UK, was absolutely, absolutely wild. Like I've never experienced like such an avalanche of just of, of just hate and also very extreme stuff as well. And I think because I'd written the piece about um, being Irish and not being white a week before, all of the people that were coming for me for the cultural appropriation thing Googled me and saw this piece. And started reacting like extremely, kind of like violently, to um, my um, kind of claiming of Irishness, and that's when all these kind of like white supremacists, American white supremacists, kind of came out of the woodwork. And I was just like, oh wow, this is like <laughs> this is like a big thing online. I don't think I'd come to their attention before. Um, but what was interesting for me. Um, So there was was so much stuff written about me, like there were long kind of, there were like long blog posts, people like really did their research, like any information that they could glean about me online was kind of coalesced together, and um, a lot of stuff about my family, about my mother, about my father, that really um, corresponded with some of the um, kind of themes we've heard, um, like this morning about the, I guess, so my dad's Nigerian and my mum is white Irish, and... um, yeah, just a lot of those ideas about, like, African men, black men, kind of the types of Irish women that would have children with them and how those offspring, me, could never be Irish. But this was not phrased in such such a polite way.
0: One of the Commission's statutory functions is to encourage intercultural understanding. At its most basic, intercultural understanding involves us moving one step beyond the concept of the multicultural. It means acknowledging that a modern country like Ireland is host to a diversity of cultures, that cultural identity matters and that disparaging, erasing or ignoring it can cause significant harm at individual and community level. There
2: was a picture going around um, Twitter. Somebody tweeted it to me and they were like, oh, this this is the type of Ireland people like you want to create. And it was just a picture of like maybe eight, like black boys they were standing next to um, like a street sign that said Tyrrellstown and I was just like I, I, see, I see nothing wrong with this Ireland and then the person was like but these are, these are gang members and this is how I was introduced to the, um, the, the kind of African gang story that um, is not just it, like obviously it's not just online it's also like in the mainstream media and just like very very common amongst people I speak to people that I would have imagined would know better but I was first introduced to it on Twitter and when you actually like look at that picture picture that w- that was kind of spread far and wide and the assumption that these are these are gang members nobody in that picture it's not like they have weapons or anything they're just literally like black teenage boys with their they didn't even have hoods. Up. Some of them have hoods up, but it's like the combination of those things and that, that narrative of black criminality, of African criminality, and that image just seemed very potent. And people just seemed to respond, like, "Oh my God, this is like the worst. This is the worst thing that Ireland could become." And I was just mm-hmm. like, "Well, it has some black teenage boys. I don't even understand like the I don't even understand like where this terror is coming from from this image." Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, th- I- and that image wouldn't be considered kind of representative of like hate speech.
0: Siobhan Komiski. Head of content policy at Facebook for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa
3: my team is the content policy team at Facebook, so we're the team that creates the community standards and they are the rules for what you can and cannot share on Facebook. There is a huge amount of people using our site one point five billion people come to Facebook every day, and that number increases to 2 point5 billion when you go uh, when you look at this figure on a monthly basis so There's a huge amount of content on Facebook and most people come there to share very positive things. Uh, What my team is responsible for is when that uh, content is harmful and we create the community standards as a result. Uh, My team is based in 10 offices around the world. Uh, We hire people from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, On my team in Dublin alone, uh, nobody on the team shares the same nationality. They're all from many different places in the world. They also come from very many different uh, working backgrounds. So we hire people from politics. We hire people with an NGO background. um, (coughs) Our... Uh, lead of the team globally, is a former prosecution lawyer. Uh, and as you heard earlier, I'm a former human rights lawyer. So we, we hire a great diverse group of people to work in the community standards, but we don't develop them by ourselves. We develop them with a large number of people inside and outside of Facebook. We do that at a bi-weekly meeting that is called the Content Standards Forum. That's an internal meeting at Facebook where someone on my team will come with an idea to change the policy. That idea could have come from an NGO that we work with. It could have come come from things that the content reviewers are seeing in their queues. They will come to this meeting and say, heads up, I'm going to make an update, for example, to our hate speech policy or our suicide prevention policy. Uh, is anybody interested in, on this, in joining this working group? And so you will have people from engineering and legal on there. You will have public policy people and others. They will join this working group. And that's where the real work happens. And they create a number of options for improving the policy that then goes to external third-party groups. So nothing that goes through this Content Standards Forum process goes through it without going to external third-party experts. So we've worked uh, with a number of non-governmental organisations, child safety organisations, and a number of academics and think tanks. Um, Once they have approved a particular recommendation, we'll go back to the group and that will become a live policy. When it becomes a live policy, we update our public-facing community standards, and we also push that out to our content reviewers. We have thousands of content reviewers based all over the world, uh, and a large contingent here in Dublin. And they will then start to operationalize that policy. To tell you then a little bit about how content review works, we use a combination of technology and human review when we're looking at content. Automation is very useful to us in sorting the millions of reports that we receive. Um, We receive millions of reports every week and automation will sort them to make sure they go to the right person. So if it's on a child safety issue, that it goes to the child safety expert. Um, If it is from a particular language and it is a bullying or a hate speech issue, that will go to a native speaker. So we don't hire people who just happen to speak French as a second language to review French content. We hire native French people who can understand the context and nuance of language. Um, automation has been really useful to us, and AI has been really useful to us. Ninety-nine uh, percent of the terrorist content we see, uh, we, sorry that we delete, we delete before anybody ever reports it. When you look at hate speech, that number is fifty-two percent, so significantly lower. And you heard Eugenia mention earlier that that you know is largely because hate speech can be very subtle, and so we we rely on real people to review that content. Um, we formerly had 10,000 people working across safety and security at Facebook at the beginning of this year. We now have 30,000 people working on safety and security across the company, and about half of those are content reviewers. And those content reviewers review reports 24-7, they have a follow the sun model, um, and we get to the vast majority of reports within about 24 hours. I'll finish up then just talking a little bit about uh, remedies. So, we have an appeal system in place. Um, so, if your content is removed, you can appeal that. We've had that in place for a long time around um, uh, groups and pages and larger, what we would call objects. We now have that at a content level for posts and videos and things like that, for things like nudity and hate speech. Um, we are also exploring the ideas you may have heard of having an independent appeals body that people can appeal to that'd be quite separate from Facebook. Um, And if you're unhappy with our decision, you could appeal to them. That's at nascent stages. We hope to get to that um, within about a year. Uh, And then finally, on the issue of transparency, we have a transparency report uh, where some of those numbers that I've spoken to, you can find them there around how much content we remove. So in the first three months of this year, we removed 2.5 million pieces of hate speech from the platform. Uh, All of those figures are um, available there to view. We also, our community standards last April, we made them public. So our community standards now contain a combination of our external facing community standards, but also what our internal reviewers actually use. So you can see in there a very detailed definition of hate speech, uh, which includes 10 protected characteristics, which is quite a lot, uh, including disability and disease. So we're ahead of of some countries on that. Um, Ethnicity is protected in there and travelers have always been recognized as an ethnicity by Facebook from long before I started working there in 2012. Um, We also, our content standards forum, so we've had a number of external uh, people come and view that meeting where I said we create the policies, including the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. He has joined that meeting. Um, We also get audited under the Global Network Initiative, which is the UN guiding principles uh, for businesses translated into uh, internet companies' use. And finally, just to mention the European Code of Conduct on hate speech that Tarlok mentioned earlier, um, we are signed up to that and uh, we removed 79% of reported hate speech content, 89% of that we removed within 24 hours. So that's just some of the initiatives um, that we are doing.
0: Recent international developments represent an increasingly urgent challenge for our society and democracy. We have witnessed in the past few years a worrying trend which has seen many countries in Europe and further afield succumb to the incipient rise of populism, unilateralism, racism and an increasingly narrow and inward-looking vision of statehood, sovereignty and national belonging. This trend, and the threat it poses, was described in stark terms earlier this year by outgoing High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zayd Raad al Hussein.
4: This is the way that wars are made. With the snarl of uh, belligerence and the smirk of uh, dehumanization, the lash of injustice and the incremental erosion of old and seemingly wearisome checks, the path of violence is made up of the unreckoned consequences of banal incidental brutality seeping into the political landscape. It is shaped by leadership that is both thuggish and infantile petulant, cultivating grievances in order to reap votes, and sowing humiliation, oppression, hatred, and disregard for the greater common good. And here is one lesson. Intolerance is an insatiable machine. Its wheels, once they begin to function at a certain amplitude, become uncontrollable, grinding deeper, more cruelly and widely. First, one group of people a singled out for hatred, next it will be more and then more as the machine for exclusion accelerates into violence and into civil and international warfare, feeding always on its own rage a growing frenzy of grievance and blaming. As that tension begins to peak, no obvious mechanism exists that is capable of decompressing and controlling its intensity because the machine functions on an emotional level that has very little contact with reason. Release may only come after tremendous violence. This in the human rights community is something we have witnessed time and again.
0: The role of the digital public sphere in this trend has been unmistakable the potential for intolerance online to shape the public debate and the resulting political debate offline is becoming one of the hallmarks of the digital age. Dr Eugenia Ciapera from the School of Communications at Dublin City University.
1: The trigger events that we identified, uh, high-profile events, were uh, the case of Ibrahim Halawa that kind of like triggered all these discussions about who qualifies to describe themselves as Irish. Also, uh, events or, or posts or anything that has to do with housing and welfare, and here we can see the effects of austerity, uh, would trigger uh, racially toxic speech. Uh, any news articles on travellers and Roma communities, uh, on Muslims, refugees and immigration, these would be typical triggers and terrorism as well. Not only, not only was like the, the hate speech on social media throughout those two to three weeks, it was bombarded, but w- as a community, we were bombarded not only with the social media platforms, but with mainstream, mainstream media as well, um, newspaper t- paper articles, radio, um, television, and I suppose um, outside of that as well, it was... Um, we were bombarded with negative um, comments as well in our everyday life so I think that it was a triple kind of, we had the social media we had the mainstream, mainstream media and we had um, I suppose the physical world itself kind of coming down on top of us as a community, bombarding us with these negative um, comments and ideas. And I suppose, as I said earlier, because anti-traveller racism is so embedded in society, it's seen that it's not hate speech. It's seen that it's not anti- tra- anti-traveller racism. It's seen that it's, it's OK, that, it's, that, that they're just criticising the community for being not settled i suppose
0: this dynamic represents a significant area of threat to human rights and equality as ireland's national human rights and equality institution the commission believes that it is crucial to better understand online hate speech and to see what can be done to challenge it There has been much discussion in academic studies about the many flaws and shortcomings in Ireland's legislative infrastructure where hate speech is concerned. These criticisms are shared by international human rights treaty monitoring bodies. There is no doubt that our existing legislation, the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act from 1989, is not fit for purpose and should be modernised. Strong law acts as an important symbol, sending a message of intolerance of intolerance. Dr Tarlok McGonigal from the Institute for Information Law at the University of Amsterdam.
5: In calibrating appropriate responses to counter hate speech, it's, it's important to look at the proportionality of those responses uh, in terms of freedom of expression and other rights, but also their effectiveness, that they actually uh, serve their intended purposes for the victims and targets of hate speech.
1: If you look at the physical world, we're regulators. You can't just go out in the street there and start with your racist speech without something happening, without you being, um, I suppose, um, uh, I suppose called out on it and um, uh, um, reported to the police station. You know, in the physical world, but it doesn't happen online. You know, so so it's like, what's the difference in um, freedom of expression uh, if we're on the digital platform and if we're on the phys- in, in, in the physical world itself?
3: We recently announced we're working with the French government on a cooperative effort around regulation because we know that regulation is coming, we know that it's something that that people want and that is potentially very good for the community of people who use Facebook. So what we want to do is make sure that that's smart regulation. So what we're going to do is we're working with the French government to find out what is it that the regulators want, what is it that they're interested in and what are their needs and also to show them a little bit about what we currently do uh, to find out if that is uh, sufficient or what they think is lacking. Um, And I think... Hate speech is the most interesting area in which to do that. And that's where we're starting because there is no commonly agreed definition of hate speech. If you take the European Code of Conduct, we're um, complying with that. But even within Europe, there's no agreed definition of hate speech. So it falls to us then to define it because we don't want to allow hate speech on our platform. So we do that very carefully with experts and academics in order to make sure that we have a rule that works for our site. Um, But regulation definitely has a role to play here as well.
0: While it's true that we can legislate away intolerance, a focus on absolutes can close down a more fruitful and nuanced debate about culture and norms. Cultural change is possible and new norms can be established, particularly by those with power and influence.
5: I think it's very important, besides the regulatory uh, approaches, to also look at the power of information, education uh, and awareness raising. very often the results achieved by those um, strategies are are not instantly tangible they're more long-term solutions but they're absolutely crucial if you're trying to create a shared space in which people can can express opposing viewpoints but in a way that is respectful of each other and and uh, i think that's a key for pluralist society
1: i think that um the social media platforms i think that um the employees there need to be need to be trained first of all because um the majority of comments like this, this I report on platforms are um, I get messages back um, saying that it doesn't go go um, against their community standards. It seems that I suppose the people working on these platforms just don't understand what hate speech is. They don't understand um, anything about the community uh, about my notaries. Um, I suppose particularly my community um, because. Um, I suppose like when I talk to international people I suppose the majority of them wouldn't even hear of my community so we've kind of been neglected as well not only in history but in policy as well we've been neglected and that feeds into from the top it feeds down to the bottom to the everyday person that uh, that perhaps um, have grown up with disembedded anti-traveler racism, that it's okay to speak like that about a community. So I think that people working in those areas need to be um, need to be trained um, in anti-anti-traveler anti- racism, particularly in Ireland. And um, I suppose they, they also need to be aware of the different types of um, racial slurs that there is that needs to be taken down, and be aware not only of direct hate speech comments, but a lot of. People, I suppose, on social media platforms have gotten around, um, I suppose, direct hate speech and have um, comments um, that are um, insinuating um, different um, types of um, hostility, but uh, it can't be directly seen as hate speech. So, for example, um, like you might have something, um, uh, a news. A paper article or something about my community, whatever it may be. Um, it could be accommodation, it could be ed- education, it could be whatever it may be. For that thing to kind of feed into social media what's happening on in, the in, in ground. Like we had a lot of um, our young people going into schools, listening to um, listening to how... The, the community should be um forced um into um into settlement and like you you had children um, being called names um such as the word knacker, um, you had children being told that um like being told um things like uh derogatory comments towards the culture you know towards the culture of like like you had some children being called horse for example you know which is um really um a negative kind of um, tonation towards the community. Um, you had a lot of, um, and I suppose like these things that are like these comments that are not direct but they're indirect um, on social media platforms, um, such as like, um, uh, is that our um, ethnic Indigenous at it again? You know, it's insinuating um, these things, you know, and it's. Um, um, For example, it might be, that's our culture boss. You know, these things that can't be really picked out as hate speech, but I think that if people working on these platforms knew more about the community, that they would be able to pick it up and they would be able to see these indirect um, comments as well as the direct comments. The traditional
0: media has a crucial role to play. The way in which the media reports engages with or denies racism and other prejudicial attitudes, matters a great deal. The media can serve to raise awareness of abhorrent views, to challenge them and to engage with them critically. However, the media can also serve to amplify such views, providing them with a platform that is disproportionate and which serves to lend them legitimacy. Dr. Gavin Titley, Senior Lecturer in Media Studies at Maynooth University.
5: This entire responsive media ecosystem which is desperate for content, which is competing for for attention, what that results in is not just hate speech on Twitter about travellers but it results in two or three days where travellers become the population that is to be debated, adjudicated about, commented on and central to the discursive economy. And I don't know how we're going to undo or, or, or in some ways uh, tackle those kinds of dynamics but I know that what this report does by asking us to think about the production of hate speech not just as an act in and of itself but as something that has a corporate logic, as something that has a, meet, a, a platform logic and as something that has a media system logic to it, that if we can start to put those bits together, then I think we can at least map out the challenges that we undoubtedly face.
0: To meet these challenges will require a society-wide focus, a collective investment in challenging the underlying ideologies which underpin prejudice, a fostering of a more civil public sphere, both on and offline. Thank you for listening to the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission podcast. For more information on human rights and equality, follow the Commission on Twitter at underscore IHREC or visit www.IHREC.ie.